Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Um, I want to start off by basically uh, asking a question. How many of you guys have actually had an experience maybe in your life that would be kind of defined as like a, a mountaintop experience and you've been someplace, you were at a camp or a weekend away or might have been a day or a few hours, a church service or something like that where you felt really near to God and felt really close to God, felt God's presence right there and then immediately within the next, you know, couple hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, uh, you were, it felt like all hell broke loose. It's like everything went downhill from there. Literally, like your relationship with your spouse went down and you got in a fight with people you actually love and you felt tempted to do sin that you've never felt tempted to do sin before. Uh, in other words, again, to reiterate it, you felt like you came from a mountaintop experience, went down into sort of the depths of hell. How many of you felt that, lived that experience? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of us, all right? It's a very common experience. One of the reasons why we like call them mountaintop experiences, right? And then we always know that something bad may end up happening. Well, in some ways, the story that we're about to read, I think, may have actually been kind of set, setting the original context for this idea. Because Mark tells us the story of Jesus in the early parts of chapter 9, where Jesus goes up and has this mountaintop experience. He's with three of his uh, inner disciples, Matthew, or, uh, Peter, uh, Peter, James, and John. And they're with Jesus, and Jesus is transfigured, meaning he takes upon this glorious uh, reality, and he's there with Moses and Elijah. And it's this unbelievable, literal mountaintop experience. And then Mark tells us in the story that then Jesus goes down the hill, and he's immediately confronted by all sorts of disbelief, unbelief, demonic forces, powers, agencies that are at work against him, against God's kingdom, against God's authority. And in a lot of ways, and I think perhaps the larger storyline that perhaps Mark is trying to cause us to become familiar with is that much of life is about suffering. Much of life is about a journey to the cross. That's the way that it was for Jesus. That's the way that it will be for the disciples. And so what I want to do is I want to read the passage that we're going to be taking a look at here today. And I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work taking a look at this text in a little bit more detail. But I want to start beginning this morning around verse 14. We'll read down to about verse 29, and then, like I said, I'll pray, then we'll get to work. Verse 14, it says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them uh, with scribes arguing with them. Now, again, remember, Jesus just came down off of this mountaintop. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up, and they greeted him, and then they asked him, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, uh, I brought my son to you, uh, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and it foams and it grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they could not, or they were not able. And then answered him, O faithless generation, how long have I been with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring your son to me. Verse 20 says, And he brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And then Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it was also, or has also cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. And if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus heard, or Jesus saw that a crowd uh, came running to him, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of the boy, and he became like a corpse, or his body became like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus then took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered in the house, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast him out? Or why couldn't we cast it out of him? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out except by anything but prayer and fasting. God, we ask you right now that you would just help open our eyes, help us understand what it is that you have to speak to us. God, more than anything, what we need today is not just merely a Bible study. God, what we don't need is just mere information. We need to be transformed. We need your Holy Spirit to move, to work, to bring to life, to bring to light the things that your word speaks to us. God, that your word would be like a seed 
planted in our heart that your love would be like what causes the growth of that seed to begin to germinate and grow and bear fruit. That's what we need. What we don't need is religion. What we don't need are more rules to somehow add to our already broken, disheveled lives. What we need is Jesus. So i got to pray that you would open our eyes to see him through this word. Pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a quote, and I was trying to summarize or think of a way to best summarize uh, all of chapter 9, and here's my best attempt at summarizing this, and basically it's this, life is one constant journey to the cross, which is suffering, sometimes punctuated by brief moments of glory or joy. And we see that basically sort of encapsulated in all of chapter 9. It starts off by Jesus going to this mountaintop, having this experience with the disciples. In reality, what Jesus experiences on the mountaintop was something that Jesus would have been very familiar with. It was what Jesus came from. We said this to you guys last week. The uniqueness or the beauty about Jesus is not that he was humanity that became divinity. That's heresy. But it's that he was divinity that took upon himself humanity. In other words, Jesus was God. Always was God. Always lived in glory with God. But Jesus came into this world stripped himself or uh, disabled to some degree his uh, divinity to some elements to some degree, limiting himself, took upon himself our humanity and therefore made himself vulnerable so that he would be able to suffer. And so what Jesus experiences on the mount was not so much for his own personal subjective experience, but it was for the disciples. So they experienced something of a snapshot. Kind of an idea of like a trailer, watching a trailer to a movie to try to get a little bit of a snapshot or a glimpse as to what's to come in the next great epic tale or the epic drama that will one day come. And so the disciples have this opportunity to experience that. Now, Jesus with his disciples then go down into the rest of the world to where they're basically confronted by suffering. And what I think is amazing about this, and perhaps one of the things that Mark is trying to convey to us, that in reality, this is the description of all of life. All of life is riddled with and filled with suffering. All of us will suffer. All of us, at some point, will die. We love to deny that, though. We don't like to talk about that. Some of us right now, we think it's a little bit of a morbid topic to even talk about because so much of our culture, especially in the West, we love to try to anesthetize ourselves to any form of suffering. It's one of the reasons why we are absolutely addicted to basically television, to media, to entertainment, because that's our drug of choice. That's what we love to take to somehow... To calm our minds, to calm our anxieties, to get rid of the fears that we have. We just watched five episodes of Seinfeld. We just try to kind of get our minds away from the troubles that are in front of us. Some of us are drug of choice, our drugs. Some of us are drug of choice is pornography. Some of our drug of choice is alcohol. We have all sorts of different ways. Some of us, we don't like to do any of those, so we just work out. We go on three-hour runs, and we say that that's how we get our minds away from stuff. Others of us are addicted to our job. That's how we sort of remove away from our mindset, away from our thinking, any form of suffering. You name it, the reality is we've done it. It's there. But the reality of the Bible is that suffering is a part of the world in which we live in. Whole philosophies have been sort of built around this theme, this idea That's exactly what Buddhism is all about, for example. Buddhism was built upon this notion of we have suffering. How do we sort of rid ourselves or remove ourselves from suffering? But the reality is that the Bible really is the only book that describes suffering in a way that basically says you can't avoid it. It's there. But there's a way to engage suffering that will not disintegrate you. That won't destroy you. That won't utterly ruin you for all eternity. That if we are going to suffer, if suffering is there, if suffering is a part of our life, how can we suffer in a way that we're still able to maintain some level of equilibrium or stability or poise? How can we do that? And this is really the story of Jesus. Jesus suffers. Jesus' disciples are going to suffer. Jesus is revealed in this beauty and this glory, and all of a sudden he comes back down into the valley, into the reality of life, of suffering and hardship. In a lot of ways, this is what we need to come to grips with. How do we do this? And again, like I said, we don't like to talk about it, especially when we kind of celebrate a graduation weekend and we think, okay, 
Uh, I got my whole life ahead of me. And the younger you are, the more prone we are to sort of dismiss the idea of suffering. But you know, we have a secret. Us older people have a secret for you younger people. The older you get, the more death becomes a reality. The more death becomes a reality. Relationships die. Friendships die. Uh, Hopes die. Dreams die. Vocations die. Dreams die. Uh, We had in in our front yard past three weeks a nest that we saw a little bird build, and we saw, I don't know, like four, about five eggs kind of in that nest. Um, my daughter called me a couple weeks ago. Uh, she was at home. One of the, the eggs had, you know, opened up, and there's these little chicks in there, and my, my daughter calls me. She says, Daddy, one of the chicks fell out of the nest, and a blue jay's pecking at the death, and it's like, oh, I'm freaking out, and I'm like, oh, I die. That's horrible. No daughter should ever have to witness this and see this. But that's death. That's the reality. Suffering death is all around us. The point of the matter is the older you get, the more you realize that death is there. How do you avoid it? You don't really avoid it, but how do you go through it with poison equilibrium? In reality, this is what I think Mark wants us to understand. That there are ways by which we can anchor our hearts, our hearts, our souls into something bigger than us, greater than us, just like Jesus did, that allow us to use the suffering. So rather than suffering destroying us, crushing us, and oppressing us, and bringing about our own disintegration, that suffering becomes something that makes us great, something that makes us glorious, the way Jesus was made glorious. So what I want to take a look at basically are two things that I see in the text. The first of which is we just have to deal with this because, again, before we even jump on that, Jesus said to all of his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good courage because I've overcome the world. So even out of Jesus' own mouth, he speaks to his disciples. And he's not trying to, like, in any way sugarcoat it or soften it for them. He's just being realistic with them. And he just simply says this. You guys, the reality is, is in this world, it's broken. The world is broken. It's dysfunctional. It doesn't work the way that it was originally created to work because sin and rebellion and the devil have come in and, and just wrecked havoc upon this earth and caused sabotage to take place all over all things and over in our lives. But be of good courage, Jesus says, because I've overcome this present world. I've overcome it. I have a plan. There's something set in place. I have something bigger, greater, that rides over all of these things. And if you trust me, if you trust me, I will take you there. I will give you the same poise and strength and ability to be more than a conqueror over these things that are breaking apart. That's really what Jesus is saying. And this is to some degree what I think Mark's trying to tell us here in the story, that even though there are those moments of glory and celebration and joy, those are not necessarily the norm. Those are sort of the abnormal. Those are the moments that we sometimes we have. We cherish them. But what's the norm in this life is oftentimes suffering, pain, and hardship. That's the world we live in. Two things I'll take a look at. One, I want to take a look at very quickly the list of characters because I think this story is unique because it gives us sort of a host of characters. The first of which is we'll talk about are the scribes kind of literated all these guys for you because some of you like that. So here you go. Disputing scribes. These are what these guys always doing. They're always arguing with Jesus. They're always trying to look for some way to combat Jesus, to fight Jesus, to resist Jesus. Jesus comes down the mountain. Here they are. They're arguing with Jesus' disciples. That argument then gets carried over to Jesus. Second, we see a demon-possessed boy. We're told about this boy in Luke chapter 9 that he is the only child of a man. We don't really know who this guy is in the story, but he's the only son, or this is the only son of this man. His age, uh, the original Greek would indicate that he's somewhere, he's a young boy, somewhere between the age of 5 and maybe 10 or 12. So imagine a young boy between ages of 5 and the age 10 or 12. We're also told this particular boy is deaf, he's mute, he has these episodes in his life and where he starts to foam at the mouth, he engages in this type of self-destructive behavior. It says that sometimes the demon, the, the demon casts him into the fire, he burns himself. So imagine a boy in your mind who's between ages of 5 and 10, who's scarred, who's perhaps bloody, has scabs on his body, more than a typical five-year-old to ten-year-old, scabs all over his body due to the self-destructive behavior. 
Uh, he's the only son, as I mentioned. And uh, Mark tells us, too, that this boy is actually tormented by a demon. Now, what you need to understand, first of all, is that the Bible describes various forms of sicknesses that take place physiologically. They're caused, basically, due to breakdown within our culture and our society, within the body, and that causes actual physical dysfunction. We call that sickness or disease. But the Bible also describes for us our occasions, and it's always very oftentimes difficult to distinguish one from the next. There are occasions such as this one in which this boy actually was demonically oppressed or possessed or had some form of torment that was coming upon him by this demon that was causing him to do these specific outbursts of rage and fits of uh, agony and so on and so forth. That this was somehow linked to demonic activity. One thing I want you to know more than anything here today is you need to hear this. If you don't hear anything else, listen to this. God is good. The devil is wicked. God is good. The devil is wicked. Anytime there is any form of death, destruction, terrorization, brokenness, injustice, shattering of your life, shattering of your hopes, shattering of anything within your life, uh, any stealing, killing, destroying, that is not from God, that is always from the devil. Talk to people periodically who somehow get their theological ideas misunderstood. And the point of the matter is that God is not the author of wickedness. God is not the author of evil. God is greater than evil. The story of the Bible is that even though evil exists, God can use evil for redemptive purposes. That is the story of the cross. God is not the author of wickedness. God is not the author of the torment, the destruction, the brokenness that you may experience in your life today. But God can and will and desires to use it for redemptive purposes. Not only to bring equilibrium and poise to you, but to also use those circumstances in your life redemptively so that you now can be an agent of healing and help and strength to someone else going through similar circumstances. That's the beauty of the power of our God, okay? So we also see, thirdly, these defeated disciples were told that they were brought this demonically possessed or oppressed child, and they, had, uh, they were not able to, to do anything with this child. We'll come back to them in a second. And then finally, we see a distressed father. And really what we see with regard to this particular guy is I want you to sort of feel a little bit about where he's at and some of the circumstances that he may be going through. First century... Uh, children were everything. Families were very important. And most of the culture back then, uh, people lived outside of urban areas, meaning they lived out in farms. And so if you lived out in a farm, you would oftentimes have that farm yourself. Or you would have some sort of trade. And what you would do is you would have a very large family, and that very large family would then become assets. They would help you out. They'd be part of the actual working uh, workforce that you would begin to develop. So if you had a farm, you would have lots of kids, and those kids would actually start helping you at a very young age so that you can be productive, as productive as you can. So if you had a firstborn child, he was the light of your life. He was the best thing, the most valued thing that you have because you knew that one of these days you were going to die, you were going to leave a legacy, and you would then leave the legacy or the family business and even sort of the headship of the home to your firstborn son. So I want you to feel this. This father does not have a tribe. He doesn't have multiple kids He's not multi-generational. We don't even know if he has a wife. All we're simply told is he's got one child. One child. And this one child, we're told that he, at some very young point in his life, began to be tormented by this, de this demon or demonic presence or demonic force. So throughout this father's entire life, he would watch his son go into these fits of rage, throwing himself into the fire, being burned. I have two daughters. I love my daughters. My daughters are so much of my life, so much of my world. They bring me great joy. I enjoy being a dad. It's the greatest delight of my life. Tomorrow morning, we're leaving bright and early. We're going on a family vacation. I cannot wait to spend time with my family, hang out with my daughters, do lots of fun stuff. I'm very excited about that. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a dad and not do anything with a child because he can't hear you. You can't say, I love you, because he can't hear you. You can't hear him say, I love you back because he's mute. He can't speak. And every once in a while, he has these episodes of just complete self-destruction. 
I can tell you that this father probably would spend many nights sitting on the edge of the bed of his son, just praying over him, watching him convulse, watching him foam at the mouth and wonder if this was ever going to stop. And then just before enough was enough, the child stopped, maybe for a couple days, and then he would go back into the fit again. We don't know. But I can tell you one thing. The life for this father must have been extremely, excruciatingly painful. It's all that he has. And he brings his son to Jesus. He's troubled. He's disturbed. He's full of anxieties. And in his mind, he goes to Jesus as sort of a last-ditch hope. Those are the players that we see in the story. The second thing I want you to take a look at, the display of Jesus' power. I want to read the story to you again. We'll pick it up at verse, at verse 20 this time. Just listen to it. Verse 20 down to about verse 27. It says this, And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming in the mouth. And then Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And then he said, Since childhood. And it was, and it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus said to him, If you can, I love this. It's as if Jesus is turning to him this question. Some of your Bible translations might not turn into questions. Most of the Greek translations would actually turn this into a question. I think Jesus, that's what he's doing here. And one of the other setbacks that we have oftentimes is just reading the Bible as opposed to living it and experiencing it and seeing it. We're not able to see, and oftentimes we're not privy to see the types of expressions on someone's face. So I would imagine, again, this is just pure hypothetical you know, conjecture, but I would imagine Jesus probably has a big smile on his face. He senses, he's not trying to be insensitive to the seriousness of this, but I perhaps imagine Jesus with a smirk on his face or a smile on his face, kind of like, if I can, do you know me? Do you know who I am? You're talking to your creator. Of course I can. Here's what Jesus goes on to say. He says, uh, all things are possible to the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, and he says, I believe Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running to him, he rebuked them, clean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never to enter him again. And then after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of the boy, and then he became like a corpse. And that most of them said, he's dead. And then Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Mark's used this phrase arose a lot in his gospel account. In fact, it's a really important phrase. And I think what Mark's doing is he's setting these little clues, these little hints all throughout the book because everything in the entire story that he's telling us, everything, everything is absolutely fixed to this one phrase, rising. Where's Mark going with this? Mark's ultimately taking us to the cross, but beyond the cross, beyond the grave, to when Jesus himself is going to rise. But I want you to notice the power of Jesus here because this is what's going on. Jesus raises this kid helps his kid, heals his kid, and ultimately returns his kid back to his father. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the joy that must have entered in the father's heart? I mean, how many people this father must have gone to throughout his life, going to various doctors, going to various people that promised alternative helps to somehow help his child, that somehow bring about wholeness to his child? Who knows, maybe even the father turned to occultic practices. We don't know. All we know that oftentimes is when somebody is desperate, they'll do anything. And that seems to be the place where this father's at. But then Jesus heals his son and then gives his son back to him. And not only is his son healed in his right mind, in the right place, but also the relationship that the father has with the son is healed. And the father's filled with joy. This is Jesus' desire to bring healing, to bring redemption. That's what Jesus wants to do with your life. Maybe you don't know that today. Maybe you've thought about that. Maybe you've thought, you know, I think Jesus may want to do this for my mom or my friend or my girlfriend or my spouse or somebody else. But what I want you to understand here today is Jesus wants to do this for you. He wants to redeem and restore you. This isn't just for somebody else. This is for you. God created you in his likeness, you in his image, and he desires to restore that which has been broken and destroyed in your life. That's what Jesus is doing here. So what I want to do is I want to finish up with this question basically is this. So in this world where everything is basically a journey towards the cross, how do we overcome? 
How do we overcome the disintegration or the brokenness or these things that come at us in forms of suffering? How can we go through suffering without being destroyed as a result of the suffering? That's the big issue. Because the reality is, is that we will all suffer, but we will not all suffer alike. We will not all suffer the same. And that simply means, on the one hand, we won't all suffer the same thing. Some of us will have circumstances that we will go through in this life, which may not be that big a deal, may not be that bad. Others of us, going to other areas, may find ourselves going into even deeper suffering. We have no idea what lay ahead, what is beyond this particular moment. But the reality is, is that the Bible offers to us a way whereby God can create redemptive purposes out of suffering so that we don't have to be destroyed. So that when suffering hits us, so we find ourselves in the midst of broken circumstances, that we have a God that can bring redemptive purposes out of that. So the question is really, how can we do that? I think there's three things that we'll have to take a look at that the gospel writer Mark tells us about. The first of which is this, is that you've got to come to Jesus in helplessness, not holiness. Let me reiterate the story. This father comes to Jesus. We don't know anything about the spirituality of this father. In fact, what we do know about this father is he doesn't have a lot of faith. We know that because he comes to Jesus basically saying, I don't know if I can even believe you. I mean, I went to your disciples and they flunked. They didn't help. They were of no help whatsoever. So he comes to Jesus, his disciples. His disciples weren't able to do anything. But the reality is, is that they, this father ends up thinking, I'm going to go to Jesus. I want to say something about this very quickly. I find it interesting that, first of all, this father goes to the disciples, and the disciples aren't able to do anything. You know, who knows what they did or what they said that somehow failed. But the fact of the matter is, is that this father was very determined. He wasn't going to allow the disciples, who in some ways maybe failed to bring about any form of healing, he didn't let them stop him or him fighting for his own son. He ends up going around the disciples to get to Jesus. And I want to say this to you because some of us, I see a lot of ways in the modern church, there are different people. I talk to people all the time who maybe have been to a church in the past, who have been involved in a small group before, or been involved in some sort of a maybe a youth group, or whatever the case is, where somebody in that group, somebody in that church, somebody in that Bible study, some form of leader, some form of representative of Jesus wasn't able to help you. They didn't help you. In fact, they may have hurt you. They may have brought wounds into your heart that were already there that sort of emphasized those wounds even more. In other words, they failed you, they let you down. And the temptation in today's culture is just sort of write everybody off. Am I right? We kind of live in sort of a fresh choice culture where it's just like if this church messed me up, I'll go to this other church. If this church doesn't work, I'll go to this other church. We just sort of hop around looking for something that's going to take care of us problem is we allow ourselves to keep getting hurt or maybe we are keep getting hurt or wounded or we get confronted by abusive leadership or whatever the case is and we have real pains real hurt real dysfunctions real problems that have never really gone away and we are hoping that Jesus's disciples were going to help us and they failed they let us down what I want to say to you is don't let the discourage you or detract you from going to Jesus look at the end of the day the church is made up of redeemed sinners. All of us are redeemed sinners. I'm a redeemed sinner. I will fail you. I will let you down. I was thinking about this the other day, that the reality is, is that I, people who try to put their hope and confidence in somebody else, whether it be a, per, a person or a pastor, somebody else, hoping that they're going to be there for them, hoping that they're going to give them the words of life, and when that person fails them or lets them down or doesn't return their phone call or doesn't return their email or text, whatever the case is, and within some sort of a timely fashion, which in this today's culture is like within five seconds, we just write people off. We're all embittered. We're like, I can't believe this. They don't have time. They're frustrated. We're out of here. It's a mentality. They let me down. They hurt me. The point of the matter is this. We will all let each other down. You cannot look at another person, whether it be a pastor, no matter how gifted that person may be, or a leader, no matter how gifted that person is, you can't, you can't make that person more than being a redeemed sinner. If you elevate them from being a redeemed sinner, with maybe calling their life to be a pastor, calling their life to be a Bible study leader, or calling their life to be a mentor, if you elevate that person from that role to be God, 
they will let you down. Meaning if you look to them to be the source of your comfort, if you look to them to be the source of your wisdom or the source of your help or the source of your strength or the source of your counsel, they will let you down. And when they let you down, and they will, you will become embittered. This father could have turned, left, and would have never known the redemptive joy of seeing his son healed. Instead, he goes around the disciples, goes directly to Jesus. That'd be my advice to you. Jesus turns to this father, and he basically says to him, I can do anything. But what I love about this is that Jesus realizes that this father's faith isn't perfect. And the father recognizes his faith is incomplete. And rather than Jesus turning to this guy and basically saying, do you know who I am? I'm God. I expect people like you to come to me offering gold and silver and lots of sacrifices. And you come and bring me imperfect faith? Go away. Get, imperfect, get better faith. Have more confidence in me. Then come back to me and talk to me when you're ready. He doesn't do that. I love this about Jesus. Because what Jesus is basically saying, the source of saving power is helplessness, not holiness. It's you recognizing that you don't have power to save yourself. It's you recognizing that you are incapable of helping yourself. But that's the culture we live in, is we love to admit the fact that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we can do what we want, we can train ourselves enough, we can somehow figure out a way to get along, to make things happen, to rescue ourselves. So we oftentimes, even within religious circles, we have this idea that basically religion essentially says, give God a good record of your life, serve Him, love Him, honor Him, pray a lot, go to church, tithe a lot, get involved in that church, give God a good record, and then God will, you will leverage down the blessings of God upon you because you've earned it. But Christianity basically says the exact opposite. God, in essence, says at infinite cost to Himself, He's provided a perfect record through Jesus for those who have a horrible record. Some of us might, right now might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I, I thought the Bible's filled with these verses that talk about coming before God with righteous hands and holiness and so on and so forth. What about, for example, in the Psalms where it says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? But he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he shall be brought into the presence of God. I want to throw something out for you to chew on to think about. I honestly believe that in a lot of ways, modern-day evangelical Christians misread much of the Old Testament. Here's what I mean. This is a hypothesis. You can challenge me on this. I'd be happy. If I'm wrong, I'd be happy to change my view. But this is my thought, and I'll throw it out to you. I really believe that most of the ways in which we read passages like that in the Old Testament, for example, he who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart, can ascend to the hill of the Lord. So we take verses like that, and we're like, okay, God, I'm going to have clean hands, pure heart. I'm going to not, you know do anything sinful, I'm going to avoid getting drunk, I'm going to avoid doing all these things, I'm going to read my Bible a lot, I'm going to use my hands to do holy, righteous things. And what we do is we do all these holy, righteous things so that now we go to church and we're like, I can ascend the hill of the Lord because I've done all these wonderful, righteous things before God, and therefore God will accept me. I can ascend the hill of God because I've done all these holy, righteous things. Here's my hypothesis. It's this, that those verses are not intended to somehow turn or terminate on you. It's not about you somehow trying to figure out how you, by your own actions, can get clean hands and a pure heart. But rather those verses in the Old Testament, all sort of a host of other verses in the Old Testament, are really pointing forward by way of a trajectory to one who does have clean hands, one who does have a pure heart, one who is the only one acceptable to ascend the hill of the Lord, and that's Jesus. In other words, does God demand holiness? Absolutely, yes. How do we get it is the big question. By reading our Bible a lot? By praying a lot? By going to church a lot? No. Because at the end of the day, if you use that as some form to leverage God's blessing to your life, you're trusting in yourself, not in God's grace. But if those verses have always meant to point forward to one who is holy, 
one who truly is righteous, one who truly does have clean hands, one who truly does have a pure heart, i.e. Jesus. And the focus of the Bible is for us to trust in Him, to trust in His record, His perfect record. That's one of the reasons why Paul uses language like being in Christ. We are clothed in Christ. That means that Yes, God's standard is righteousness. It is holiness, but it's not your holiness. It's not your righteousness. All you have to offer is your helplessness, not your holiness. What I love about this is sometimes people look at their life and are like, I don't have that much. My faith isn't that strong. Do you know that you're in the exact same place as his father? Even the desire to want to have faith is equivalent to a grain of a mustard seed. And Jesus looks at that and says, with God, all things are possible. Trust in him. It's about your helplessness, not your holiness. The second thing is that you've got to trust Jesus with everything. What I mean by this is that you're going to see here in the passage that there's tangible things that we trust Jesus with and intangible things. I'll start with the tangible. Take a look at the story of the father bringing his son. Take a look at in about verse uh, 19, the last part of this. Jesus says to the father, he says, bring your son. And the father then ends up bringing his son. Now, for all you know, if you're the father, and here you are, you've had your son, and he's suffered under your care ever since he was very young. You bring him to the disciples, the disciples fail. You could have very easily had a nice excuse to just write Jesus off, but this father doesn't. He ends up bringing to Jesus his own son. What looks to be kind of an interesting little scenario that Jesus then, what supposedly heals him, but nobody knows he heals him because to everybody else, what does it look like? The child is dead. So the father brings the child to Jesus, a deaf mute, demon oppressed, and ends up with a child who's dead. It looks like a total failure. It looks like a total loss, as if his entire world now is gone. But in a lot of ways, what you find, oftentimes, following Jesus... We kind of have these misperceptions in modern day American Christianity that to follow Jesus means he's going to give you a better life. This is totally not true. You can't accept that. You can't expect that. John Bunyan knew this, right? Some of you guys maybe read the book, Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan tells his little story, Pilgrim's Progress. The very first thing the main character, his name's Christian, finds or discovers on his little journey to the celestial kingdom, celestial city, is the slough of despondency. Very first thing he discovers, he gives his heart to God, and next thing he knows, everything is difficult in his life. It feels like you're moving very slowly. Things aren't coming very easily. You know what it feels like? It feels like there's nothing but a million deaths. It feels like the father bringing his son, his only son, before Jesus, and then he dies. But here's the thing. To the father, this was everything to him. In a culture that valued family, in a culture that looked at your son, your first son, your only son, as being everything, it's the future, it's your legacy, it's the only thing that you have of ultimate supreme value, this father was willing to lay this child at Jesus' feet and say, whatever it is, it belongs to you now. I think what we need to hear is we need to hear Jesus looks at us and all of us have something in our life that we look at as ultimately valuable to every one of us. It's going to look differently for all of us. Every single one of us has something that if it was to be taken away in our life, it would feel as if it were a death. It would feel as if we would die. I mean, there's certain things in our life that if they were to go away, if they were to die, if they were to no longer be there, we'd feel bummed. Like, we would be traumatized, and we would find ourselves in the midst of tragedy and hardship, in the midst of suffering. But there's a difference between experiencing suffering as a result of a loss and feeling a sense of absolute despondency. Those things in your life, in my life, that if they were to be taken away, that would lead to nothing more than despondency. Those are the things the Bible describes oftentimes that are idols to us. Things that become greater than God. Those are the things that we turn to to bring us peace. Those are the things that we turn to to bring us wisdom, to bring us comfort, to bring us hope. We turn to them, and when those things are taken away from us, they crush us, they let us down, they break us. And the problem with that is that when we do that to anything in this world, 
we make something more than what it should ever meant to have been. This is why, for example, in a marriage, is marriage a good thing? Marriage is a very good thing. I've been married for over 20 years, 21 years. And the reality is marriage is a wonderful thing. But if I make my wife to be the ultimate thing in my life that brings me ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate security, ultimate peace, then when she fails, when she fails, and she will fail, then I would be despondent. In other words, I don't function properly, and she can't function properly. She's not free. I'm not free. I'm not free because I can't imagine life without her. She's not free because she can never live up to my standard. She can never be for me everything that my heart wants her to be. So she's bound because she's always under this heavy weight of expectations that are never being met. Does this make sense? You ever experience this? This is what Jesus is saying to the Father here. Bring me your son. And he'd say the same thing to you. But it's different for each one of us. For some of you, Jesus would say, bring it to me. Lay it at my feet. Let me take care of it. So the first thing we need to recognize is we need to be able to give Jesus everything, both tangible and secondly, the intangible. And what we see later on in terms of the intangible, Jesus pulls his disciples aside. And when he's with his disciples, his disciples are a little bit confused. They're like, Jesus, we don't get it. How come we couldn't cast out the demon? We've done that before. Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends the disciples out, and they go out and they cast out demons. And they've done this before, so it's not like they've never done this before. But then Jesus says to them, look, this kind only comes out by way of prayer. Some translations add prayer and fasting. Now, without getting ultra-spiritual in terms of trying to over-dramatize or over-spiritualize what prayer is, in the most simplest way, what prayer is, prayer is basically me aligning my kingdom with God's kingdom. Me subordinating my kingdom under God's kingdom. Now, prior to Jesus going up to the mountain, transfiguration, all of his disciples were with Jesus, and Jesus started talking to his disciples, saying that, look, you guys, I'm the Messiah. You all know that. I'm the Messiah. And they're all excited about this. Like, yes, you're the king. You're going to conquer Rome. You're going to put to death our enemies, and you're going to set up a wonderful kingdom. We're going to rule and reign with you, and we're excited about this. But then Jesus goes on to basically reprogram their understanding of what the Messiah is, and Jesus says, oh, by the way, the Messiah, me, I'm going to die. In the disciples' minds, they're absolutely shocked by this because I've said this before, dead messiahs are failed messiahs. So in their mind, they just can't in any way, shape, or form conceive how can the messiah both rule, conquer death, and wickedness, and injustice, and evil, and yet die at the same time. How can he do this? They can't figure it out. And so therefore, they're, they're questioning. They don't get it. They don't understand it. So in their minds, that's what I think is going on here, there's these areas in our life of disbelief, of distrust in who Jesus is. And Jesus is saying, this kind comes out by praying. The arrogance of thinking that you can go out and do this on your own, in your own power, in your own kingdom, in your own efforts, without synchronizing your kingdom, your soul, with my kingdom, subordinating your kingdom under my kingdom, has led to your failure. To be a follower of Jesus, to know what it looks like to basically find equilibrium and poise and strength in the midst of suffering, we have to synchronize our little kingdoms with Jesus's, under Jesus' kingdom. See, the problem is, it's not always that we don't have enough information to go by. It's that we, I oftentimes find we have enough information to trust Jesus, but we don't want to trust Jesus is the real issue. There's certain things in our life we just don't want to trust Him for. We don't really want to trust Him. Like if Jesus, I'll trust Jesus to be my Savior, to get me to heaven one of these days, but I don't want to trust Jesus to give me the strength to forgive that person who offended me. I'll trust Jesus to help me one day to go into the next afterlife, but I refuse to trust Jesus for my daily bread, to give me the resources, the means that I need to live. i got to go out and figure out some sort of conniving, evil, wicked, stealing, thievery type ways to make that happen because I don't really trust that Jesus will take good care of me. I'll trust Jesus for salvation, but I won't trust him for a future spouse. So you go out trying to do all sorts of crazy things to try to figure out how to make that happen, and really it boils down to a simple issue. Do we trust him for everything, both tangibly and intangibly? And the final thing is this, is that you've got to see Jesus 
ultimately losing everything. You have to see this. Because really what the Gospel Mark is ultimately going to is it's going to the cross whereby we see Jesus basically as He asks the Father, bring me everything. But we also see Jesus Himself basically saying, I will give everything. I will lay it all down. And on the cross, what you see is Jesus Himself being tormented for us in our place so that we who are tormented can go from anxiety into peace What we see on the cross is one who is the only Son of God, the only Son of the Father, come into this world and lose the hand of the Father on the cross, lose the grip of His Father on the cross for some period of time so that we who are not sons and daughters of God because of our sin, because of our wickedness, so that we can then become brought into the circle, into the relationship of being sons and daughters of God, you have to see that Jesus lost everything so that we who have nothing can gain everything. To the degree that you see that Jesus did this, not just ambiguously for the world, but to the degree that you see this viscerally, to the degree that you experience this subjectively, to the degree that you experience this personally, that He did this for you out of love, not for grandma, but for you He loves you. To the degree that you see that, that will thaw your cynicism away. And it will turn your hardened heart into a worshiper. That's what changes us. To see a Savior who willingly laid aside all things, making Himself vulnerable so that we who have lost all things could have sonship and become daughters of this King. To the degree that you see him do that for you in the great things, you can trust him in the little things of suffering in this life. Because he took on the ultimate form of suffering, the little sufferings we have in this life, he must have a plan. He must have a redemptive purpose through these things. That's what rescues us, that's what saves us. It's not our hope, it's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, it's not even memorizing a bunch of Scripture passages, not even just going to church. It's trusting in Jesus that saves us. We're going to finish. We're going to respond. We're going to partake of communion. I'm going to have the guys come on up. I'm going to lead us in some songs of worship to close with. What I want to do right now is I want to ask that if you're here today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond, that some of you You need a response. Some of you feel in your heart that you are oppressed. You feel tormented. You feel as if your life has been broken. You feel as if people, disciples of Jesus, have let you down. You've been crushed. You've been broken. They have not treated you kindly. And yet, at some point in the midst of all this, you still see Jesus. You still hear Jesus. You still know that He's calling you to come to Him. He's calling you to bring to Him that which is most valuable in your life to lay that down before Him so that He can rewire, He can restructure, reorder your broken, shattered, tormented life. If that's you, and you want to come to Jesus, you want to lay this stuff down, and you want to be prayed for, we want to pray for you. So wherever you're at right now, I would invite you to stand up. We want to pray for you. We're a church, we're a family, we're a body. We love you. There's no shame for some of you, this may not in any way even speak to you. Others of you, this is speaking to right where you're at. This is where you're at. You're in the valley. You're in the midst of suffering. You find yourself confronted by demonic oppression, torment. might be because of sin. It might be because of some sort of sickness, illness, or disease that you're battling. It's crushing you. It's tormenting you. And you're saying you want to be delivered. You want to be set free. If that's you, wherever you're at, I invite you to stand up. We just want to pray for you. This is always hard. It's always difficult, I know, but it's one of the reasons why we turn on the lights. We just, it's between you and Jesus. We want to pray for you. Anybody at all, this is right where you're at. I know this is tough. We have a Savior here that loves you, that was tormented, that was crushed for you, in your place, to set you free, to deliver you, to help you. God bless you, man. Thanks for standing. Anybody else? Stand up right where you're at.
I say this every week and I mean it. Standing up is not magic. Having people lay hands on you is not magic. It's not some sort of instantaneous way to just cause everything to go away. The reason why we do it is because we're a family. We love each other. We want to rally around each other. And we want to be very serious and intentional about what it means to be the body of Christ. That's why we lay hands on you. Because it's a way of us saying that we're with you. We love you. We want to see you get involved in the community group. We want to see people around you that are involved in the community group. To get your phone number. To call you. To come alongside you. To help you out. Anybody else? Just stand up right where you're at. Thanks, guys. That's tough, man. I know. That's super tough. pray for you. If you're sitting down next to somebody who's standing up, would you mind just reaching over to them and laying hands on them? And uh, right now, if you guys can uh, just start praying over them. Um, you know, if people are standing together, maybe just just pray over them individually. Start praying over them right now so they can hear you. Um, just take a minute, pray over them. And I'll, just, I'll pray over all you guys and we'll sing a few songs. We'll partake of communion invite you to partake of communion. If you're a believer and you love Jesus, part of his family, partake of the communion and remember what Jesus did for you. If you're not a believer, I invite you to just trust Jesus today. The rest of you, you can just get your heart ready. We're going to sing. Expect Jesus who's here to work in your life, to do something in your life. What do you trust him to do? What do you need to bring before him? them, breaking them. God, I ask you right now that you would set them free in the way that you would set them free, God, that you would cause them to look to the cross, to see that Jesus was crushed, oppressed, tormented, afflicted for them in their place, bearing their sin because he loves them. God, I pray that they would see how great the love of God is for them. That would rewire, reconstruct, reorganize the affections of their heart. God, for the rest of us, as we sing right now, as we worship you, God, that you remind us of your power that's here, that's mighty to save, that's, God, that you are here, you're present, you love us. We can cast our cares upon you. We can give you our hearts. We can bring to you even our children, the most valuable things in our lives, and lay them at your feet. Know that, God, you will bring life to these things that we value. Just sing to you now, God, and worship you.